So there is a parallel between Noah's day and our day. And God wants us to be prepared so that we will not be surprised by what we are seeing in our day. In fact, God mentions the days that we're living in in a number of Old Testament passages, either by type or prophecy or some analogy. And Jesus taught that there's a parallel between Noah's day and our day, and we don't want to miss that this morning. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in our series titled, God's Prophetic Schedule. Pastor Carl will be preaching from the book of Genesis, chapter 6, in his sermon entitled, Noah's Day and Jesus' Return. There is a parallel between Noah's Day and our day. Jesus said, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Furthermore, we must remember that as we see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, we know that the rapture is that much closer. Let's join Pastor Carl in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, as he begins. Take God's word, would you? Genesis chapter 6 this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, we have just recently finished an entire book of the Bible. And before we begin the next one, I'm doing a 15-week series. At least that's what I think it will be. It could be 20, but on God's prophetic schedule. And today I want to speak on the subject, Noah's day and Jesus's return. Now, if you know the book of Genesis, there are two major divisions, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50. In chapters 1 through 11, you have the historical section and 12 through 50, the biographical section. And I said historical, not parabolical or mythological, but historical because what you find in the first 11 chapters actually happened. Each section can be summarized by four key words. In the first section, you have the creation in chapters 1 and 2. You have the fall in chapter 3. You have the flood in chapters 4 through 9. And the fourth word would be the nations there at the Tower of Babel in the final chapters 10 and 11. Now, 12 through 50 also has four key words, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So that's the book of Genesis in a nutshell. And so we are dealing here with the historical section, and one of the key persons in this section is a man named Noah. We're introduced to him in chapter 5, and his dialogue goes all the way through the 10th chapter. And God predicted that the coming of the Son of Man would be just like the days of Noah. That's what Jesus said. So there's a parallel between Noah's day and our day. And God wants us to be prepared so that we will not be surprised by what we are seeing in our day. In fact, God mentions the days that we're living in in a number of Old Testament passages, either by type or prophecy or some analogy. And Jesus taught that there's a parallel between Noah's day and our day, and we don't want to miss that this morning. I hope you found it by now, Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, come to the next Meet the Pastor. You'll receive one as a gracious gift from a family in our church. Genesis 6, beginning now in verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with man 
forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, or Nephilim, if you wish, were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord, notice its caps, capital L-O-R-D, this is the covenant name of God, different from capital L, small letter O-R-D. He's speaking here throughout this text of Yahweh. Then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, from man to animals to creeping things, to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I want to remind you of the immediate context of these verses, because right here in the early chapters of Genesis, by type, you have a picture of the rapture of the church. We get our title, Genesis, from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible, Genosius. The Jewish people title their books of the Bible based on the first words in the first, say, five books of the Bible. So Bereshit is the Hebrew word in the beginning. So they call this the book of Bereshit, in the beginning. This is the book of beginnings. And in kernel form, you find in Genesis all of the great truths of the Bible, and God spends the whole scripture unfolding those. In Genesis 5, it sets the context for this sixth chapter. We see a picture of God's sovereign plan for the coming ages. In chapter 5, we have by type, a picture of the next great event on God's prophetic calendar. All the way through chapter five, eight times over, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. And then Enoch's name appears like an oasis in a desert of death. And in verse 24 of chapter five, and he, meaning Enoch, was not, for God took him. Enoch was a man who never experienced physical death. Here's a man whom God took physically to heaven without dying in the traditional way. He went up to heaven in a very wonderful way. It's very possible that some of us here this morning will experience the same kind of truth. That catching up, harpazo, from the Latin we get the word rapture. It's the rapture of the church. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed, all be changed in a moment. And the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. I tell you a mystery. What is a mystery? It's the Greek word mysterion. You can hear our word mystery in it. And it's a word that is used in Koine Greek to describe something that was once hidden, but is now revealed. And even if you didn't know Greek, if you read Ephesians 3, you could see that's the essence of this particular word. The rapture was in the Old Testament, but it was hidden. Now it is totally unfolded in the day that we live in. No one knew that Enoch pictured a whole generation of people who would not see death, but would be taken directly up into heaven. God has now revealed that mystery as he's unfolded it in the New Testament. And so one of these days, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's faster than you can blink your eye, 
Christ is going to come back and he's going to take his church to heaven. Now, it could happen before this day is over. No one knows the exact time, but the Bible affirms the imminent return of Jesus. Imminency means there's nothing that has to happen for Jesus to come. There's never been anything prophetically that has needed to happen for the rapture to come. God could have done it in 300 AD or 1000 AD. Now, it would have been more dramatic how he would have done some of the global issues, but if God can make the rocks shout the gospel, he can do whatever he chooses. The fact is, is that God is setting the stage and we can see visibly before our eyes how God might unfold some of the events. Now, again, Jesus said, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And so I want us to think about the days of Noah, and as we study them, I hope you will see how God is setting the stage for the return of his son. The coming of the Son of Man, the second coming, will be like the days of Noah. So when you see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, you know the rapture is that much closer. Three facets in these latter times that are pictured in the days of Noah. First, Noah lived in days of great apostasy. Noah lived in days of great apostasy. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land or the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Now in every instance in the Old Testament, where this term sons of God uh, the Greek there, uh, the, the Greek actually in the Septuagint uh, literally says the angels of God, hoi angeloi tu thau, the angels of God. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's what most Jews read in Jesus' day, and that's why it's repeatedly quoted in the New Testament, because that was the lingua franca of the day. In either case, they understood B'nai Elohim to refer to angels. The B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. In fact, in every single instance in the Old Testament, the term sons of God is used to refer to angels. There's no exceptions. For instance, in Job 38.7, it says the sons of God sang and shouted for joy when God laid the foundations of the world. Likewise, in Job 1.6 and Job 2.1, Satan, along with the sons of God, uh, come into the presence of God. Both holy angels and fallen angels could come into the presence of God Almighty. And there's texts like 1 Kings 22 or Zechariah 3 where you even see fallen angels coming into God's presence. Another example would be Daniel 3.25 where you see this term B'nai Elohim. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar looks into a fiery furnace and he sees four. And the text says, in the form of the fourth is like the Son of God, or you could translate it because Elohim is plural, like a son of the gods. Clearly an angel. And I would not be surprised if this was indeed the angel or maybe better the messenger of Yahweh, one of those pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus before he showed up in Bethlehem. But what I'm wanting you to see is that throughout the Old Testament, the term sons of God is used in reference to angels. 
And in the New Testament, interestingly, born-again believers were called not just children of God, but in Romans 8, 14, sons of God. The Bible only uses this term, sons of God, for those that are direct and immediate creation of God Almighty. It explains why in the genealogy, Adam is called a son of God, because he is directly created by God. And there are only three categories that would fit, angels, Adam, and those of us who are born again, who are new creations, 2 Corinthians 5 says. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. All three are special and specific direct creations of God. Adam, Christians, and as in this context, the sons of Elohim. Uh, And again, it can be used of both holy or fallen angels. Context determines, in this case, fallen angels who cohabited with Uh, the daughters of men. In fact, for 1,500 years of church history, that was the only way this passage of Scripture was understood. And that's significant because obviously if that's the singular voice of the church fathers who write and live immediately after the apostles died, then this is how the apostles would have taught the text. Now, I need to say parenthetically while we're here Uh, that sometimes you will hear these verses preached, and someone will say, well, the sons of God are the godly line of Seth, and they intermarry with the ungodly line of Cain, and that what is at view here is a mixed marriage, that is, between a believer and an unbeliever. Well, that interpretation is impossible, and you need to be able to explain this. I've preached this text before, but if I ask you for three reasons this morning why that interpretation is impossible, some of us would glaze over. But I'm asked this repeatedly. I was asked in the Bible line on Tuesday about this particular passage. First of all, it does not say the sons of men saw the daughters of men were beautiful, but rather notice, look at your Bible, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and so they took them as wives. And so the contrast is not made between the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain, as God could have easily and plainly said, but between the sons of God and the daughters of men. If this were some sin of a mixed marriage, that is between believers and unbelievers, it seems rather strange that only the sons of Seth and not the daughters of Seth were involved in this sin. To say that the sons of God, the B'nai Halahim, are the sons of Seth because Seth had a godly heritage would seem very strange because then you're concluding that only the daughters of Cain and not the sons of Cain were involved. Think your way through that. The reason I take the time to underscore this is because sadly there are many today who are guilty of eisegesis. We are to exegete the scripture, to read out what God has plainly said. We're not to read into the scripture. And so their argument is not convincing. They're guilty of reading into the text because God is drawing a clear distinction here between angels and women. And that interpretation, again, is consistent with the fact that the Hebrew Bible never once uses the term b'nai alchim to refer to humans but only to angels. Secondly, one cannot ignore the truth that the marriage between the two groups produced a race of giants. The offspring of the union between the sons of God and the daughters of men 
are extraordinary. They have unusual children. In fact, they are so unusual, this becomes a term kind of like Armageddon. Someone describes a crisis and they say it's Armageddon-like. And even so, as time unfolded, even after the great flood and all these people were wiped out, there are people who are referred to as Nephilim because of their great size. But these were unusual people. Look at verse 4. The Nephilim, the King James renders it or really interprets it, giants, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The Living Bible captures it this way. In those days and even afterwards, when the evil beings from the spirit world were sexually involved with human women, their children became giants of whom so many legends are told. Again, those who argue that this is intermarriage between Seth's people and Cain's people often appear to Ma- appeal to Matthew twenty-two thirty, where Jesus said, in heaven, believers are not angels, but like angels, and that we neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, while it is true that angels do not marry other angels, they can materialize in bodily form. And in every single instance in Scripture, when an angel materializes as a human, there are always males. There's no exception. And we know also that angels can assimilate food and drink. Genesis 18, when uh, Abraham entertains those angels. And we know the possibility of the two angels that came to Lot's home, the possibility that they could have literally physically had a relationship with humans is underscored in that very text of Scripture, not to mention foolish Lot, who offers his own daughters for their own evil. Know, too, that angels, the Bible says, are greater in might and power than are humans. And so if you've been to the garden tomb, which is a class A spot when you visit Israel, the Jews, uh, the Romans would have secured the t- the, uh, that tomb with a stone that is estimated to have weighed at least 2,000 pounds. It would have taken a mighty angel of God to have moved that stone on that occasion, and that's what happened. A third reason I know that these are angels is because the New Testament gives us commentary on this particular portion of Scripture. Put out in the margin, Jude 6. Jude, there's just one chapter, so we don't usually say Jude 1 colon 6. We just say Jude 6 if you're new to the Bible. Jude 6 is written to uh, battle uh, the apostasy that God said would come, not just in Jude's day, but especially at the end of time. And let me read Jude in verse 6. And angels who do not keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So this verse tells me that there were some angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. That is to say, they did not function in the way that God created them to function. Now, there are different kinds of fallen angels that are in Scripture. But unlike most fallen angels who have the chance to wage war in the heavenly realms against each other and against believers, this particular class are in eternal bonds under darkness 
for the judgment of the great day. So what exactly did these angels do that brought this unique and eternal lockup in this place that Peter calls Tartarus, translated hell in most English texts? Verse 7 tells us, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these. Stop right there, in the same way as these who? As in the same way of these angels just described in verse 6. In other words, there's a parallel between the sin of Sodom and the sin of these angels. Both left their proper abode the way God had created them, and they did something that was unnatural. They did something that was forbidden by God. I don't care what the news is saying this month being Pride Month, that homosexuality is something that we should embrace and endure. It is an evil. It is an evil that can be forgiven like anything else, but it is nonetheless an evil. And I don't care what Fox News said this week, that some boy, even before he could speak, identified himself as a male, uh, as a female, or whatever it was, a girl who identified himself as a male. Look, these are evils in our day. And we learn that these angels, like the men of Sodom, notice, indulged in gross immorality. They went after strange flesh, and they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude tells us there were some angels who, like the men of Sodom, committed a wicked sin and that they went after strange flesh. And in this case, these angels did what was forbidden. They cohabitated with women. Now put also out there in the margin, if you don't have it, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. Let me read that text for you. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, that's him, for us the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God. Christ's death is substitutionary. It's not an example. It's not an act of martyrdom for a cause. He died for you. He died instead of you. He died in your place to take your penalty. Notice, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Doesn't say put to death in the, put to death in the flesh and made alive in the flesh. Now that truth that he, his flesh was literally resurrected is unfolded in the verses that will follow, but he's not there yet. Put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which, in his spirit, also he went, and what did he do? He made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Sometime between the time the Lord Jesus died on the cross, was laid in that tomb, and came out of the grave early Sunday morning, he went on a preaching mission. And so Christ uh, went and spoke to a particular class of angels who had not heard of his great victory. Some of you grew up in liturgical churches where the Apostles' Creed was repeated every week where it says Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and then on the third day was rose from the dead. He descended into hell for what purpose? To preach. Now, sadly, there were some Catholics who said he descended into hell to pay for sin. And so some Protestants, therefore, took that out of the Apostles' Creed because on the cross, he shouted, it is finished. The payment was done on the cross. But he descended into hell to preach to these angels, these spirits who are now in prison. Look at verse 20 of 1 Peter, or listen to it. Who once were disobedient, so he's giving us the time frame, 
who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And so while angels cannot procreate with other angels, when in human form, they can and they did in Noah's day. And the offspring was a race of freaks, of monsters, mighty men, men of renown. At the most, they were half demon, half human. At the least, they were demon-possessed people, which might help explain the severity of the judgment that followed in that great worldwide flood. Satan was trying to cloud the human, uh, the true humanity of man in which God would bring the Savior of the world. And so there's an unparalleled evil that took place at this time in human history. And God said, I will not have it. I will wipe them off the face of the earth. But this breed of people, they were preaching evil, just like we studied last week, that in the end times there will be doctrines of demons. And so if the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, and if the days of Noah were days of gross apostasy, is there any parallel? Well, if you were here last week, I preached a whole message from 1 Timothy 4.1. Let me read that verse to you and dust off your minds if you've forgotten it already. I hope you haven't. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, not last days, latter times, there's a difference. We underscore that. Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Likewise, Jesus spoke of these days before his second coming. He said, and at that time, many will fall away and they will betray one another and hate one another. So as we think about apostasy, again, it's not atheism, it's not agnosticism or some other ism that you can think of. The term apostasy has a much more narrow definition in the New Testament. It doesn't just refer to false religion, it refers to someone who claims Christianity and either falls away from it and creates some new form of Christianity. That's, we have a plethora of that all across America, even under the banner of evangelicalism that does not represent true historical Christianity. So someone wrote me this week, and what's wrong with Joyce Meyer? I said, are you kidding me? I haven't responded yet. She's a not. She's an apostate. She's a false teacher, but because people don't know their Bibles they cannot tell the difference. And then there are those who not just fall away, they totally renounce the Christian faith. So every apostate is an unbeliever, but not every unbeliever is an apostate. There are people who've never even heard the plan of salvation, and they're not falling away from the truth that they have not heard. So again, there's a narrow definition in the New Testament of what an apostate is. And both Jesus and the Apostle Paul describes people who are outwardly Christian, but inwardly still lost, and they turn away from the faith. And again, as the question came in on the Bible line on Tuesday, when someone falls away from the faith, he's not describing someone who is a Christian and then lost it. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 005. There is no friendship that is more important than friendship with God. It is a relationship with eternal consequences, and the greatest act of care and concern that you can ever show someone is to introduce them to Jesus. 
If you have never shared Christ with anyone, or if it has been a while since you have done so, we would like to help. Dr. Brogy has written a booklet that highlights five principles that are fundamental to having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you like to know God as your friend begins with a number of diagnostic questions and concludes with a presentation of the gospel message. These booklets will really simplify sharing your faith. And now we will send you 50 of these booklets as our thanks for a gift of any amount to search the scriptures. Call us today at 877-787-7478 and ask for the Would You Like to Know God is Your Friend gift pack. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.